instead of trying to verify which what Jim is. Yeah, well, good luck because, you know, the cases are just, you know, well, yeah, they're hard to find. Yeah. The verifiable cases in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So the, <laughs> anyway, that's another subject for another yeah. time. Right. The, the, um, the impressive thing to me about your life story as I'm hearing it was how you went from one thing to another, somehow being having a sense of being guided of people showing up, your Asheville stories, uh, the people showing up, j just even with your two children. Right. <laughs> what, what, what more is there this put it right in your face after you have your own and then exactly. the two of them are like yapping it's about the same thing and saying yeah. and and you've got the evidence that going through the trauma helps them uh deal with the problem problem that they've got right now uh, and their phobias i mean you you were just set up for doing this i mean you could have ignored it but uh the momentum was right there and uh, as we were talking about it earlier uh, that you did um, a paper uh while you were in college on the tibetan book of the dead and william blake now they are connect connected i mean they yeah. certainly have something in common because they both get beyond the regular pale of current existence as we think about it and get into some higher consciousness but they come from such different genres some, such different countries uh, such that they're hard to like put together uh by yourself but somehow you found their similarity and were able to write about it and as we have talked you have mentioned the phrase something like and it changed my life you've had like a bunch of those it changed my life things happen to you and that william Brake one was with the tibetan book of the dead was one of them right now we won't go into that right now because we can get too much uh, for me far off of field but closer to me is the people can see in on my door of this office of mine a, a poster that happens to be from like uh, my hippie days in san francisco uh, late 1960s early 1970s there was a store on market street that was selling the stuff that was still remainder of the posters and i i got some and uh jesse colin young and the young bloods were like a favorite of mine i had three albums that i would stack uh and listen to carol king's you've got a friend was was mm -hmm. another one and james taylor uh was another one from those days and i would put them on there and this was one and i i loved this only side one i didn't like side two as, as much what and the elephant mountain jam the elephant yeah well let me yeah the elephant <laughs> the elephant mountain album is what i listened to side one with yeah. i got used to side two but the then, then i tell you that 
that I thought Jesse lived on Tamalpais, but he lived in Point Reyes, which on the other side of Tamalpais. Uh, I didn't even know he had houses out there. I thought it was just sheep that were on Point Reyes, and maybe that was at one time. But I tell you that, and you, after you look at it and you ask me, and you said, you know Jesse Colin Young, and he, he was another life transformer for you. What happened with him and you? Well, um, I always had a lot of synchronicity around musicians. And I guess I was, I met him in my junior year of college at a concert. Well, I was at a concert at, at Sanders Theater at Harvard. You know, we got tickets, my friend and I got tickets to the last minute, 25 cents to go see the Youngbloods. So, you know, whatever assignments we were supposed to be doing that night, <laughs> gone. And we went to the concert and we were sitting near the soundboard and one of the guys said, oh, would you like to go to a party? <laughs> yeah, we're, of course we would. <laughs> so that was the beginning and he, they would, we'd get in touch or they'd get in touch with us anytime they were coming to Boston. And then after junior year, um, I just, I couldn't focus on schoolwork any longer. It became meaningless to me after that. I wrote that paper on the Tibetan Book of the Dead and William Blake. So I decided to go out west and I ended up in Boulder where I had some really interesting synchronicities. But then I moved out to Marin and I, I saw him again. And he, you know, he just opened my mind to another world. He was a an artist. He did his own you know, his own artistic thing, and he did it well. And I just liked artists. I liked musicians. You know, they were more open-minded than a lot of people I knew. So he just opened my mind to more possibilities, I would say. And um, I did see him, I guess I was telling you the last time I think I saw him was after my first book came out. And he was very interested in what I was doing. And he, of course, he remembered me. And, you know, I just, you know, I'm watching him in his videos getting older and I'm getting older. So it's kind of interesting, you know, like, wow, we're all seniors now. We're all seniors now. Yeah, <laughs> Even Jesse. Even, um, it shouldn't have happened. He should have stayed that age. But uh, all of us should have physically, oh, but not mentally. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. You, that that was something that, that we shared a bit of in common. Uh, that so, I, but you were connected with him. Yeah, but, well, it's interesting too because and I I noticed that about the time lag with a lot of major synchronicities for me. When I was in high school, I was really into folk music since about the age of twelve, and you know I played guitar. And I remember I would tune into some, I grew up in the Hudson Valley, tune into some Boston FM station. And I heard Jesse for the first time, Jesse and the Youngbloods singing Grizzly Bear. And I just, first time I heard a voice, I'm going to meet him someday. You know, I was like 12 or 13, whatever, 14, I don't, and that's, um, that's I just knew. That, that's the kind of thing that I now want to get to about you is, yeah. is that, your life has been filled with synchronicities. Yeah. You really had a lot of them. And getting ready for this show somehow 
helped you organize them in a way that you hadn't organized them before. And I wonder if you would describe for us the kinds of patterns that you've seen now looking at your coincidences in a more organized fashion than you had before. Well, um, the obvious thing for me is that, you know, when I think about how my path has gone, that synchronicity is the guidepost or the guideposts in my life for better or worse, you know, it's, they're just there and I follow them, you know, and I know that, okay, this might lead to something good and it might not now. I think I was more naive when I was younger, you know, thinking that, oh, it's you know, all that, good. It's all yeah, good. Exactly. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I know, and it's interesting because, and I knew this too, when I saw M night Shyamalan's movie, the sixth sense, I think, He's got to make a movie about children's past life memories. You know, he's going to make a movie. Well, I ended up sitting in my, um, I don't know, so maybe 10 years later, sitting in my friend's kitchen with him and his wife. Um, because he was interested in my work and he was interested in doing a reincarnation movie. Um, and uh, when I was leaving that luncheon, he, he and his wife left first. The friend who was their friend who hosted the luncheon for me, it was just the four of us. Um, she gave me this book that a journalist friend had written about M. Night Shyamalan, how he ran his life um, through synchronicities. You know, everything was good. You know, you follow this, you follow, you know, it's in that inflated sense. Yeah. And that was a real eye opener for me to read that book and realize that I had done a lot of that when I was younger. I thought every synchronicity is meaningful. It's all good. You know, it's like God's blessing or something, you know, I don't even yeah, know, yeah. Like, you know, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's not what it is. And, you know, you can't over interpret these things in that kind of inflated way, but they will lead you somewhere. Yeah, they, somewhere that's pretty problematic every once in a while too. Exactly. It, it's not it, what it's not like what we what I thought it was or what you know this book portrayed M Night. I'm sure he's changed over the years. But it's, um, it's one of the um, points I like to make in this new book, Knowing Coincidences. It, there's a chapter on problematic coincidences, and and they are. There's a variety of them. Uh, one of the uh, things that's coming out of the Coincidence Project is a statement by uh, one of our participants, or who I'm um, one of the ambassadors, who's going to like stay. Give it's a statement that a person who's overwhelmed with coincidences can give to a mental health person, or can give to a relative or a friend who's concerned about their mental health, because some people get so caught up in them that they think they're crazy. And some of them are crazy. And some of them are only partially, because some of the ideas are good ones, and some of them aren't. Right. And then there are just regularly normal, normal people who go through a big life transition, and they're getting hit by a lot of them. So they it, it needs to be drilled down into different categories of potential usefulness. They're all potentially useful, like any life experience, but some of them just make you really nuts. Yeah. 
Would you, we could talk about that in a separate conversation. Too, we could. Because I know what you're talking about. But you, you have had a lot of them like uh, going like, I like to think of it as a, a monkey going from one vine, swinging to another vine, swinging to another vine, swinging to another vine. And I've done that too, is going blah, 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 blah. It's like, uh, okay, so I'm not on this tree. Now I'm over on this one. And it's a, it's a whole different environment to be in different leaves and different monkeys and different other things happening and you've done that a lot if that's i have that's a pattern that i think i don't say you're you it's unique to you it isn't it couldn't be just you but you've had uh, the longest string i've ever heard of of doing those from vine to vine swinging well see you know before um I encountered your group and read your book what you consider synchronicity i didn't before i, I considered synchronicities were meeting those people at amherst you know direct hit quickly but you know when i think back now after reading your book and thinking of this in different terms a much broader term i always attribute it to i've had this intuition you know, I've always been intuitive, but I didn't recognize what it was, you know, like I knew things would happen eventually, certain things in my life, and they have. Um, like meeting but, Jesse, Jesse Young. Yeah, because I, I was kind of fixated on him, you know, on the Youngblood's music for a while, and then, you know, it shifted to other people, and I've met them. You know, I've met so many musicians. Van Morrison picked me up hitchhiking. <laughs> I ended up working for him for a little while, <laughs> taking care of his kids. You know that like <laughs> it's not around music too, and it it goes with classical musicians too. It's not only rock and roll, but um, yeah. I, but I think you know what what I think a lot of people think of is intuition or you know knowing things before they happen, but having a sense of that i think a lot of people do i think a lot of people do and and part of what we're trying to do here is let people expand their understanding of intuition because it's a lot of different things right it's it's inner inner knowing is the general idea about it but there's a lot of avenues and that that information comes into you and you've been open to it for some reason i mean blast it open and it keeps happening to you and you can follow them and see them and expect them and kind of go with them when you kind of knew it was going to happen because we're, we're coming to the we're coming to the end of this and i want to mention uh, your two books again children's past lives and return from heaven and that uh, Carol Bowman is working yet on another book um, on on reincarnation or past lives. But let, let's end with what you think might be uh, a funny coincidence of yours. Okay, I have two short ones. Okay. When I lived in San Francisco um, late one night, I can't remember if I was alone or not. I walked into, I guess it was a little restaurant. And... Um, it was brightly lit. I remember that. And all of a sudden I had a huge sneeze and some man was standing next to me and he handed me this little pocket size Delsey tissues. 
I don't think they even make those anymore. Before Kleenex, Delcy, he handed them to me and I said, oh, Delcy Dorfman. He said, you know her? <laughs> it was the mother of one of my friends growing up, but they lived in another town. But I always thought her name was funny, Delcy Dorfman. And I thought, yeah, he said, oh yeah, well, how do you know her? I, I don't even remember, but it was one of those, what? <laughs> you know, I don't even know why I said that. Uh. Another one, I was thinking about, you know, our talk today and wrote this other one down. Um, when I lived in Asheville, my best friend and I got pregnant at the same time. And right at the ends of our pregnancy, we went on this hike up a mountaintop and we were sitting there having a picnic and um, we were talking about baby names. And I, at that time, neither of us knew whether we were going to have a boy or a girl. You know, it was a different time, different era where you were surprised when the baby was born. So we were talking about, boy, I was talking about boys' names, and we had narrowed it down to two, and one of the names was Chase. And I said, well, I really like that name. It's kind of an odd name, but my husband had known a Chase in college. So all of a sudden, we heard someone, and this is a very isolated spot, you know, a 360-degree view on a mountaintop. This woman was yelling, Chase, Chase. And I go, what? <laughs> she, we, we heard her before we saw her. She came up to where we were sitting. I said, why were you yelling Chase? She said, oh, it's the name of my pet raccoon. And he ran off. <laughs> so we had to name him Chase after the raccoon. You've got some great stories. And I know we haven't, we haven't tapped into a lot of them. Actually, but... I, yeah, well, we should do this again because I have like four pages <laughs> Oh, you really got you really got onto it because yeah. I, I, I'm encouraging people to do just what you're doing is to yeah. is to do coincidence diaries because you'll find patterns and they'll be they'll become clarity to you. And you, from your description, may have a certain subset of coincidence types, which I think a lot of people do. They're not all the one. I, I have a chapter in this book called coincider types there are different types of of coincidence experiencers and what what you've got are like the monkey vine ones a lot of those and you've got in intuitive uh just sense of something and then it happens uh, sometimes in a short period of time sometimes in a long period of time so these are kind of precognitive um, things uh, that maybe you have something to do with making happen. So, so pre I'll put in those simple terms, precognitive and uh, monkey vine, which is kind of a new line, a new type for me that I've heard from you. Uh, th th then there's these clusters, which I don't, I don't know what to make out of with you and your two children, uh, both doing the reincarnation thing dance together i mean that's and then the person coming to to uh asheville to help uncover some of the for for each of you um that's a i, I can't categorize that quite yet uh, but it's a monkey vine kind of thing too because you you're you're there and then he helps you go to yet another place so there's, there's a lot there's a i i, I think you're a monkey <laughs> i know i'm a monkey <laughs> You do know that. I'm a monkey. I own it. 
Yeah. You own it. Okay. Well, yeah. you're you're a monkey, and there's lots of vines around that keep yeah. swinging in your direction that you help uh, that, that you that you have the sense of grabbing onto. Oh, good. I'm glad I have some sense with this. Yeah, but but I was going to say the other side of that is before all of this came together for me, I I was kind of uh, flapping in the wind. You know, I didn't really have a sense of direction until the synchronicities led, led the way for me. Being open like that, which is where I'm trying to get to now after being pretty focused on just organizing this coincidence business is where I'm trying to get to now is to, is to see what happens. Uh, a friend of mine just told me about a friend of his, that a friend of hers that lost his cat and she says, why don't you get another cat? And he says, I'm going to wait until one shows up at my doorstep. And one did. And she was pregnant. <laughs> and she just, <laughs> she just made herself at home in the house <laughs> and delivered her babies. And my friend has now the run of the litter. I mean, it, it's like being open by being, by being spacey, you might say, or unclear right. about where you're going, stuff comes in. And that's what's happened to you. And I, I imagine you still do that in some form or another. So I want to thank you very much, Carol, for being on our show here and talking with me and having a great conversation. And we'll be, we'll be talking again in some form or another for sure. I hope so. It was really fun, Bernie. Oh, good. This psychosphere is a mental atmosphere like a hologram of cosmic consciousness. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. Glad that you are joining us. We encourage you to tell coincidence stories by telling them to your friends and your relatives and to anyone who will listen. You will find that more and more people are recognizing the wonder, the imagination, and the usefulness of synchronicity and serendipity. You create some of them. The source of many remains mysterious, at least for now. Come help us unravel the mysteries of everyday life. Connect with coincidence. Our guest today carries with her a real mystery. How is it that some children seem to remember their past lives? Carol Bowman, is an author, researcher of children's past lives, life memories, and has been a past life therapist for adults for more than 30 years. 
her two books, Children's Past Lives, 1997, and Return from Heaven, 2001, both with great publishers, have been translated into more than 20 languages. She has appeared on many TV shows, including Oprah, Unsolved Mysteries, Good Morning America, and ABC Primetime, as well as documentaries on the BBC, A&E, CBS, and PBS. She's also been a guest on numerous radio shows and podcasts, as well as lecturing in Europe, the United States, and South America. Welcome to the show, Carol Bowman. Thank you, Bernie. You're welcome. And uh, let's uh, let's let's start off with um, one of your coincidence stories. Um, I mean, there's a one that you that you wrote to me about, but I got the other, I got the other one that I want to ask you about afterwards. So let, why don't okay. you tell why don't you tell us that that one? Which one? <laughs> you the, mean the, the one, funny one? The one with your family and your daughter. Your you your family and you were visiting your daughter who had just started college oh, right. at Amherst. Right. I forgot I mentioned that. Yeah, I guess it was around 1997. My daughter, they had Parents Weekend at Amherst. And um, whole family went up to see her. And there was a craft show in the, they have a little village green. It's a beautiful little town. And my son and I were walking around together for a few minutes. And we were walking by one display booth, whatever you call it. And there were two women in it talking about this young red-haired boy who remembered being a black Civil War soldier. And Chase and I looked at each other and Chase went up and said, I'm that boy. They had seen him on television. They just happened to be talking about him as we walked past. So that was a, a direct hit, as I would say. Well, and, um, what struck me is Chase is your son. Correct. And yeah, that's that's the that's the 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 linchpin in all this uh, that you gave birth to a toddler who's yapping about uh, being somebody else. And was that how you first got into the reincarnation possibilities? Well, actually, I got into the reincarnation possibilities um, when I was in college, but it was more philosophical. You know, I didn't know there was a practical re um, application to reincarnation. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s and I, well, I started getting sick in my 20s. I got pneumonia when I was living in California. Um, after I got back from the West Coast, I got it again. And then I had, in my 30s, I had one lung issue after another, and I was getting sicker and sicker each winter. And in, in the height of the illness, I had this image of myself as a man in bed. And it was a waking vision. And he was in what I say now, 19th century clothing. Um, and there was a woman in 19th century clothing sitting next to his bed. Uh, nursing him, not nursing, well, helping him. And um, I knew that he was dying of consumption. You know, I had this intuitive sense about the image. 
and knew he was dying. And then the next thing I saw in this vision was an aerial view of his funeral, funeral with horse drawn hearse, I guess, and um, mourners walking into this cemetery. And I was looking at it from above and I didn't know what to do with that. You know, I, I hoped it was not some premonition of imminent death for me. So I sent my husband to the library to get books about reincarnation and he came back pretty much empty handed. They were not really worth reading at the time. This was in 1987, 1986. Anyway, um, about six months later, someone was passing through Asheville, North Carolina, where we're living. And um, my friend called me and said, there's somebody who does past life regression from Florida. And I said, get his phone number. <laughs> and I didn't know what past life regression was at the time, but I knew I should try it. So I did. And that two hour session changed my life. I saw not only that 19th century death where I died of consumption, but the big one, the big reveal was I saw myself dying in the gas chambers of World War II. And um, after that session, I realized that a lot of childhood experiences, childhood dreams, uh, were trying to reveal themselves from, from that past life. And I didn't have any context for what was happening when I was young. But then after I did the regression, all the pieces of the puzzle fit into place. And I saw that I had died in World War II and had lost my whole family and everything else. And the upshot of that two hour session was my lungs cleared up. So it was pretty dramatic. So my medical doctor at the time and some of my friends wanted to do tripass life therapy too. So I invited Norman Ng, who is the therapist who worked with me, to come back to Asheville to work with my friends. And um, it was a year after I did my first regression. And then in that interim, from the first time I did a session to Norman visiting me in Asheville, both of my children, young children, revealed that they had phobias. And it was pretty obvious with my son that he was terrified of loud booming sounds. And it hadn't come up until that 4th of July in 1988. And um, he was due to start kindergarten. And I thought, well, the next time he's exposed to these noises, he's going to have a meltdown and they won't know what to do with him. So I had no idea children could have past life memories at that point. I had had my own experience and I had a healing, but I had no idea about children's memories. But Norman was a very skilled hypnotherapist and the kids adored him. He was a really wonderful person. And um, I asked him if he could give Chase, some, my son, a post-hypnotic suggestion so the next time he was exposed to these sounds he wouldn't freak out. And he said, sit on your mom's lap, close your eyes, and tell me what you see when you hear the loud sounds that frighten you. And he started describing himself in the first person as a, a soldier carrying a gun with a sword at the end, crouching behind a rock. I don't want to be there. I don't want to shoot other people. I miss my wife and family. And that was the moment, you know, this shockwave went through my body. And I figured this must be a past life memory because it's not Sesame Street. It's not Mr. Rogers. You know, this was first person narrative as if he had been there. 
So that was the moment that changed my life. And I always like to say, he was sitting on my lap when it happened. He was five at the time. And uh, my work fell into my lap, literally. What right. I feel is my life's work. And it was through through Chase, but also my daughter had her own phobia of house fires. And um, she went through the same process with Norman right, af right after his 15 minute recollection. And um, she, her phobia went away as a result of talking about her past life where she had been a child who died in the fire. In Chase's case, he, he died on that battlefield. We later found out it was a civil war battlefield. And he, he talked about his memories for about two years after that. And he was a black soldier in the American Civil War. And he died behind a cannon. Hence, his, he was triggered by the 4th of July fireworks. The sound of loud booming sounds triggered his memory. So I thought this was like the most and uh, important part. He had a chronic eczema on his right wrist where he said he was shot in that battle. That wasn't a fatal wound, but it was a wound where they took him to a field hospital. He described how they bandaged his wrist and made him to go back into battle. And he had had a chronic eczema on that spot on his wrist. And the upshot of that 15, 20 minute um, retelling of his story as a soldier resulted in his phobia going away and his chronic eczema, which he had had since he was a baby on that spot on his wrist, completely cleared up. So I was absolutely amazed. I thought this is the, the most interesting thing in the world. And I started pursuing my own form of research with members of my community in Asheville asking parents if they had ever run across their children talking about past lives. And some of them said yes, but they didn't know what to do with it. And um, that was the beginning of my research. And I, you know, here I am more than 30 years later. And um, I wrote my first book because I didn't really have any, anyone who could help me understand what had happened to my children. So that was the beginning of that career. And to you. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's how this is the first I'm not. How common is it to have a trifecta like that in one family? Uh, it's unusual. Yeah, I would I guess but, so. You know, I, it was a setup for me. You know, everything was orchestrated for me all along with getting sick. This, the illness was a blessing in the sense that I discovered this. Um, then I had that vision and then meeting Norman Ng, who was just passing through Asheville, having the regression, understanding what past life therapy is. And I started training with Roger Wolker shortly after that. There was, which was another synchronicity. I was at my friend um, Patrick and Kathy Skye's house after my first regression. And um, <laughs> Kathy and I were on the same page with this. She believed in past lives. She had some spontaneous memories herself, but her husband Patrick thought it was, you know, bullshit in his terms. But he said, oh, and here's a book written by a friend of mine, Roger Wolger. You might like this. I think this is a bunch of crap. <laughs> So I read Roger's first book, Other Lives, Other Selves, and he was a Jungian. 
and wrote from that perspective. And I ended up training with him and we became good friends. But he was my first teacher in past life therapy. So that book was given to me, you know, one thing after another. But the fact that both of my kids had phobias, which I didn't know about until that interim year, but after my first regression, between the time that Norman came back to work with my friends in Asheville, I became aware of the phobias. So I think the timing of that was coordinated too. I think it's not random. <laughs> and having two kids who both had memories. It ain't random. And yeah. when you got that kind of um, condensation of three and one, um, it's uh, there's something else going on. It's a low probability event. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, there's something definitely paid. But, you know, just the fact that they both had healings, too, from their phobias. And Which Chase is, had a physical healing. It's a... It, it's there for the scientists, scientists in you to use as proof that there's something else here that you hadn't otherwise thought about. Not it's many not, people would call me a scientist, Bernie. Well, I would because you're just, we're all scientists trying I to agree. figure out how things work out. I agree. Uh, and, and the idea of citizen scientists is really important to the study of coincidences because we got to gather the information from all sorts of places people are trying to figure out what's going on around here. I totally agree with you. And, and you had evidence and that's, mm -hmm. and, and so you went for it. Yeah. So that's, we'll call you a citizen scientist if you want to be, you. if you want to be, uh, but you've been more than that. You've been trying to be able to figure this thing out and being able to, by writing about it and talking with people. And that's uh, begins to look like anthropology um, and sociology when you start thinking about what you were doing. Yeah, and, um, it's interesting because my brother is a heart science person. He's an MD, PhD, and um, you know he he's very open-minded. Though his, I think I may have told in the group. Um, That's a good he, scientist. A good scientist has yeah. to be open-minded, open to new. We have to be open to new data uh, instead of just stuck in the old, which is the trouble with modern science these days. Stuck in the old paradigms. So, so we, science is investigating the anomalous. It's, exactly. That's what it, that's what it is, and you, you're trying to say, well, "Oh, that's weird. How did that happen?" Now, I've I I had starting at age 15 or so a very distinct image of running for a barbed wire fence and climbing the barbed wire fence, uh, knowing I was going to be shot at. Uh, as spotlights um, yeah. came on to me and I was left uh, hanging uh, with a bunch of bullet holes in me from that barbed wire fence. Do you have any more information on that? Just the feeling of that I couldn't stand being away from my girlfriend. Just, just that because uh, I was in a concentration camp is what it seemed like and I, I was like going to be dead or she was gone. I mean, Victor Frankl did a lot better than I seemed to have done with that. Uh, and I, I know I, what you mean. Yeah. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't, uh, that's the, the image was the barbed wire fence, the spotlights, the bullets, the hanging there. That's about all that I've had. Interesting because um, talking about Victor Frankl, 
he really helped me <laughs> because I know that in that life I was in a concentration camp, but I was, I gave up. I was just so numb from all the trauma and my children had been taken away and my husband had been taken away before us. So there was nothing left to live for. I didn't have any meaning. So when I read his book and he could determine who was going to survive and who wasn't in the camps, you know, I thought, oh, wow, this, this, you know, and I read a lot of survival stories about the Holocaust too, trying to figure out my experience in that, in that time. Well, there's there's a nice coincidence books about the Holocaust, the miracle, small miracles of the Holocaust uh, that is part of a small miracles group that has a lot of great stories. I don't know what happened to mine. Books dis I, yeah. disappear from my house sometimes, and I don't know where yeah. they go. Uh, Actually, I read, uh, I found a book um, in the 80s um, written by Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust with the miracle stories. I love that. You know, that's definitely intervention. Yeah, it's, we can talk about how these things happen, which is uh, a matter of uh, faith, hope, and belief, and uh, like what resonates with us. And right. so I, I, I spend some time trying to explain, but my major thing is description right now, because it's still a new science. And it's, you got to like, lay out the territory and writing about my own coincidences which were so special and so unique no i've read a lot of stories now i heard a lot of stories they're not so special they're not so unique there a lot of people have ones like them one of the principles i've learned about coincidences and a lot of other things if you thought about it somebody else is thinking <laughs> about it right now or will do that very soon uh, I had a great experience with that, with uh, making up the word simulpathity. By simulpathity, I meant experiencing the pain of a loved one at a distance, the old definition of telepathy, but it needed a new term instead of just being all cognitive. And I had that experience as my father was dying, choking in his own blood and i was choking uncontrollably three thousand miles away and a lot of people had experiences like that it wasn't that special so trying to be able to collect i was a stamp collector when i was a teenager and it's a collecting story it's just collecting them and putting them in countries uh putting them in categories that 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 i'm doing and there are different explanations for different subtypes and we have to be able to explain the subtypes now you've got you've got this this kind of weird one that i mean I a lot of weird ones but the the one with uh, your redheaded son being talked about right as you're walking by people who are talking about him that's one of those um short time interval types Right. Uh, where one thing's happening. And if you've just been a three seconds off or five seconds or minute off, it, it wouldn't have happened. And that's, that's a different, that's a different category is this short time interval ones. What did, how did that, that one, not, not nearly as big as some of the ones you've described, but how did that one affect you? I, well, to me, when a synchronicity occurs, whether it's a short one or a long 
a gap one, you know, where there's a time gap. It just shows me that there's this fabric <laughs> around us and we're part of this fabric. And I feel like I'm just, okay, good. I'm, I'm plugged in. I'm still plugged in. It just makes me feel more connected to this bigger, whatever is happening behind the scenes here or in the scenes. That is one of the probably most common, if not the most common use of, of coincidences or synchronicities when they have some meaningful to, meaningfulness to them, that is that I'm plugged in, I'm on the right path, things are going well for me. Uh, I wouldn't, I've had more, too much experience to say it means things are going to go well because I've had major synchronicity where it turned out that it, it things did not go well for me after that. You know, I don't read too much into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they, not like, oh, yes, so, you know, everything's fine. No, not necessarily. But I had to go through something to learn something. That's uh, that's so important. Um, yeah. To, to recognize that some of these aren't uh, confirmation. Right. Uh, maybe they will be sometimes. I've had relatively minor medical problems off and on, like my blood pressure's up again, and I don't like it, but it's like trying to be able to tell me something about what I'm needing to be able to do with myself. And what I'm needing to do with myself now is, is get rid of the toxins of my past mm -hmm. so that I can like be more in the present. At least that's what I have some idea about. They, they tend to be they, they they tend to be uh, lessons that we can try to learn from, which is what I like about coincidences, uh, is that what are they telling us that we can learn from? Now, one of the coincidences that I liked about what you have told me before was that you had a friend named Chris when you were growing up. And and that is, I mean, oh, you mean no, you, I, I knew her in Asheville. Oh, in Asheville. You had a as friend. As an named, adult. Yeah. Oh, as an adult. When you had a friend named Chris in Asheville, you were close friends from what I think you told me. For a short period of time. For, yeah. a, for a short period of time. But yeah. you, you got together pretty well. Yeah. And then you find out that Chris is married to uh, the another prominent uh a past lives uh, researcher. And there Jim, aren't too many of us. And there aren't too many of you. That's <laughs> Jim Tucker, who is a colleague of mine here at the University of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And and I, I like that one. Be, be, there, there the two of you are connected yet in another way uh, through your relationship with Chris. Uh, what did that one mean to you? I'd rather not talk about that publicly. <laughs> Well, we can we can talk about it afterwards. Yeah, then we'll talk about it afterwards. But I, I, well, Jim introduced me to Ian Stevenson. Um, so I got to do some investigations with both of them with my cases. Um, and that was an education, you know, to be able, you know, he literally wrote the book on children's past lives in the West. You know, he was the foremost researcher you know his his work will live on his legacy is great in the, in this field you're talking about ian, ian? yeah yeah. Ian. Absolutely. yeah he yeah he was marching around asia interviewing people i mean he really went out there 
and was just just like um, yeah. the researchers in uh, in the old uh, parapsychological associations, very thorough. Very. Very. Nobody does it quite like that. Really grabbing information right. from all kinds of places and right. documenting them. Where where I was stuck with is is uh, is telepathic impressions, because in that book there was a lot of simulpathy like descriptions, and so that gave me support for what happened between me and my father. That I could be able to say there's other evidence for this. I'm not the only one. Other people are experiencing them, and that's what he did for me i never met him because he was gone by the time i was oh, yeah. here yeah. It's, they're still waiting this it's still waiting for ian stevenson to tell him the combination to the lock i, know. <laughs> I think that's perfect i love that um but i learned a lot from ian and i also saw where my work is different because they were in such a narrow you know trying to uh authenticate each memory to verify each memory so that precludes 98 percent of the types of memories kids have in the west they cannot be verified because the cases he was studying were in asia in india and southeast asia and the kids memories are there are of a different quality because they believe in reincarnation i think the children are more forthcoming with their memories and they remember more details like proper names so they could identify people. In 30 years of research here, I just have a handful of cases that could be verified. The kids here don't remember names the way in the same way that they do in a, in countries where they believe in reincarnation. Yeah, in countries where they and, and didn't didn't in India a lot of the a lot of the um, cases took place within a small range of distance from each other. Sometimes. Yeah, but still, I mean, people didn't weren't mobile there as they are in the United States. Yeah, yeah that would make a yeah. big difference. Yeah. It, make a, it makes a huge difference. Um, but because of the cases that Ian investigated, um, there's a different kind of evidence that's available in Western cases. And that's, I didn't have any budget doing this research in 30 years. The only money I got from it was the advances on my books, the royalties on my books. Um, but I managed to find that, you know, there are patterns in Western cases, too, that are different from what Ian is talking about. And I'm, I'm writing about that now. I'm working on my third book. And it's yeah. all American cases and, and the adults in past life therapy. So I'm, I'm, since I'm trained in both and I've been working with adult clients for more than 30 years, you know, I, I know what that territory is and how it's similar to what the children are experiencing. The healing is the same by going back and processing the past life trauma. It's, it's the same thing with children. It's much easier because they're much closer to the source. You know, they haven't been indoctrinated, acculturated, you know, layering over ex of experience. So anyway, yeah, that was, um, that was, started out really well meeting Ian and just seeing that I'm doing something different and Jim is continuing in his footsteps and I've gone off in a different direction you know mine is a much more practical approach I'm I'm addressing those 98 or 99 percent of cases where the parents need help to help the children process the traumatic past life memories 